Up into the forbidding majesty of the great Madre range go men. Their pasts buried in silent secrecy. Their futures hidden in the mystery of adventure. Men drawn together in their search for gold. Dog, soldier of fortune. Howard, the old timer. Curtin, the youngster. And Cody, the intruder. These are the men who tried to tap the treasure of the Sierra Madre. Men with an oath on their lips and muscles in their arms, but men with greed in their hearts. Ready to break their backs, to sell their very souls for gold, fighting shoulder to shoulder against the forces of nature, only to find their greatest enemy is human nature. Shut your trap! Shut up or I'll smash your head flat! Ah, throw it! Without me, you two would die here more miserable than rats. Leave him alone. Can't you see it? The old man's nuts. nuts. <laughs> you're so dumb, you don't even see the riches you're treading on with your own feet. <laughs> As far as I'm concerned, I don't want to keep that dame waiting, whoever she is. We wounded this mountain. It's our duty to close her wounds. The least we can do to show our gratitude for the wealth she's given us. You talk about that mountain like it was a real woman. She's been a lot better to me than any woman I ever knew. I know exactly what you mean. You want to take it all for yourself and cut me out. I know you for what you are. For a long time I've had my suspicions about you. Now I know I've been right. So that's your stinking game, is it? Informing. I knew you was an informer. I knew it all the time. Take a look down that mountain. This means all our funerals. What's that? I'm writing what I'm thinking. May the Lord be with us. And that soldiers, they're bandits. Welcome to another episode of the Film and Water Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I am your host, Rob Kelly, and joining me this week to talk about one of, well, one of the greatest films ever made, 1948's The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, is our pal and giant fan of this movie, Ange. Ange, welcome back to the Film and Water Podcast. Hey, thanks for inviting me. Um, I have been looking forward to talk about this movie, so I'm glad that you uh, penned me in as the co-host. Yeah, this is this is a as I said, one of the I think it's one of the greatest movies ever made. Uh, it's not that it's unappreciated because it's a John Huston movie, it's a Humphrey Bogart movie, it's an Oscar-winning movie, so it's not like a, a movie that people don't know about. But I also still feel that even among Bo, Bogart's amazing filmography it's just to me not as as appreciated as it should be i think this film is just an absolute masterpiece uh for anyone of any one of you who hasn't seen it the plot is very simple uh basically two americans go searching for work in mexico and they convince an old prospector to help them mine for gold in the sierra madre mountains the the two americans in question are fred c dobbs played by bogart a guy named Curtin, played by Western star Tim Holt, and the old prospector is a man named Howard, played by Walter Houston, father of director John Houston. And along the way, these three guys go searching for gold. They run into difficulties, both natural and man-made, and uh, greed rears its ugly head, as you might imagine. Um, they run into some. They run into some some banditos. They run into another guy who's once again in on the gold. They run into some some 
problems with nature itself. The mountain seems to be its own kind of an enemy facing them, trying to keep them from getting the gold. Uh, you know, Inch, why do you love this movie so much? You know, it's funny that what you said in the opening, I feel, is true. You know, from a Bogart standpoint, I just think that people will always talk about Casablanca. They'll always talk about the Maltese Falcon. They'll even always talk about the Kane Mutiny. And this kind of always ranks like five or six. And I just think his performance here in this movie is so fantastic that, you know, when I gave you a list of movies that I wanted to talk about, I felt that this was one that sort of warranted its own discussion because I do think that, um, it does kind of get lost amongst um, all of the greatness uh, that the people who are involved in this did. Yeah, it's it's really uh, it's remarkable in its kind of brutal frankness uh, for a movie made in 1948, produced by a major studio. Uh, there's all sorts of little scenes here, bits in here and there that you feel like, how did John Huston get this? You know, kind of get this past. I mean, first of all, just Bogart's playing such a scumbag. I mean, in the beginning, you you are sympathetic towards him because he's, as he puts it, he's an American down on his luck. And he's always hitting people up for loose change. I mean, in fact, uh, there's a guy that he puts the bite on three separate times. And that's played by John Huston. That's played by the director. And when he hits him up on the third try, John Huston's character gets so mad at him that he gives him an extra bit of money. And he says, here, this is it. You know, leave me alone after this. But then, of course, after I think the second time that he gets money from from the the, the guy, uh, a prostitute walks by and you see that instead of spending money on, you know, food or clothes, he's going to go spend the money on the prostitutes. (laughs) And just just the idea of the main character of a movie played by Humphrey Bogart is consorting with a prostitute just that by itself. Uh, is pretty out there for 1948. And just as a little bit of a trivia, apparently the prostitute is played by movie star Anne Sheridan. Uh, oh. she, she does not get any dialogue. Uh, she just did it as a gag, uh, as a favor to John Huston. Boy, that's crazy. I didn't know that. Yeah. I, com- um, I agree with you that, you know, you want to feel a little bit of sympathy for Humphrey Bogart, but, you know, his descent into madness and his character is pretty unsavory. As you say, one of the things that sticks out to me is, you know, he is, you know, in these torn and tattered clothes in Mexico, begs for money. And then you see him, he's with the prostitute, he's getting like a fancy shave and haircut. And you say, boy, you should be using that for clothes and food and not these extravagances. And, you know, even he spends some of the money that he panhandles on a lottery ticket, which you just say, there would be better ways for you to use this to kind of move ahead in the world. Yeah, there's a great scene with the the, the kid selling him the lottery ticket, played by uh, Robert Blake. That's uh, the future uh, Beretta star and murderer, Robert Blake, plays the, plays the little kid. And there's a point where he keeps bugging Bogart, and Bogart splashes him with a glass full of water. And uh, there's a there's a um, audio commentary in this movie. Uh, the one was put out on DVD, and the the historian, a guy named Eric Lax, who does a really good job, he talks about that that Blake got along really well with Bogart. That Bogart treated him with a lot of respect. But he goes, man, when he had to throw that water in my face, he let me have it. You know, like he was a real performer, and he really got splashed with it. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's you know Bogart, and then it's. The other scene, I mean, I'm thinking of when um, you do have sympathy for him and the other guy, uh, Curtin, is that they end up going to work uh, doing some laboring jobs for this guy who promises he's going to pay them off. He's going to, oh, you're going to go do a bunch of labor and we're going to pay you. You guys are going to be great. And then the guy cheats them. Uh, he says, oh, no, the money that I was supposed to get from my bosses hasn't come yet. And then he sort of sort of disappears and you realize – 
when they go back to the bar and they mention, hey, we're doing work for this guy, some other guy says, that guy's never going to pay you. You got cheated. And then later when Curtin and Dobbs find the guy, the guy's like, oh, no, 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 trust me. No, why don't you work for me one more time? I'll get you the money. That In fact, here, I'll buy you a drink. And he buys them a drink and it turns into a fight scene, one of the most nastiest fight scenes I've ever seen in a movie. Uh, there's no music behind it, and they, uh, Curtin and Dobbs really beat the hell out of the guy. I mean, they kick him in the face, and they end up taking his money from him. And it's a it's a really startlingly nasty fight scene. Yeah, that guy looks like he's you know in pieces at the end of it, and uh, you know he's like, take my money. You know, he's really groaning and in a lot of pain. And it's kind of fascinating to me that they take only what they're owed. Right, they right. Don't, right. They, they don't, don't rob him. Like, yeah, yeah. They don't rob the guy blind. They're like, you owe us three hundred dollars. We're taking our three hundred dollars and we're leaving. But you're exactly right. They beat the tar out of this guy, um, <laughs> and uh, he looks misshapen when it's done. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, should, we should uh, talk a little bit about the production of this movie. It's based on a book by an author named B. Traven, who was a very mysterious figure. Uh, in fact, his real identity was never revealed. No one's ever known who he was. According to the audio commentary, uh, a guy showed up claiming to be the representative of B. Traven on the set to work with John Huston, and everyone thought maybe that really is B. Traven. Uh, but it was never revealed. No one ever quite figured that out. And the movie was, was scheduled to be made uh, pre-World War II. Uh, there was a director named Vincent Sherman who was going to make it, and then – it got put off when World War II happened and everything got delayed. And then apparently uh, Houston said, I want to make this movie. So do not move forward with this movie while I'm off and, you know, I'm off overseas. And uh, again, according to the auto commentary, the script literally was in a, on a shelf somewhere with a note on it that said, save for John Houston. <laughs> you know, and so when he got back, uh, he then made the movie and uh, he directed, they said he directed his father. Walter and Walter Houston delivers a tremendous performance in this. Uh, he is—he seems like he's nuts too. But as the movie rolls on, we see that he's actually fairly reasonable. Uh, he's a—you know—he's—he's he's panned for gold before. He respects the mountain. He talks about restoring the mountain to the place they left it after they take the gold. And I mean, so while he's. He's toothless and grizzled. You realize him and Curtin have really kind of got uh, their heads on their shoulders, uh, pun intended, uh, compared to Dobbs, who is just like, as you said, just slowly descends into madness because he, he's so utterly consumed with greed and paranoia because he believes every moment that the two guys are going to kill him and take his share of the gold. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I agree with that, that the, um, Walter Houston at times, you know, laughs and laughs sort of like almost five seconds too long when you're yeah. watching the movie. Like, <laughs> I think he's kind of lost it. But that scene where he does say, we can't just up and leave. We have to take down the water sluice that we've made and fix the mountain. It has sort of this Zen quality. The um, the way that he becomes a medicine man for this Mexican village and, and the medicine that he does um, is, is kind of um, otherworldly. And even at the, I mean, I'm sure that we're going to get there, but, you know, his last lines in the movie kind of speak that um, uh, he does have this sort of uh, wisdom about him, you know, that uh, the world has played this joke on them uh, and they should <laughs> laugh about it, uh, you know. Uh, so uh, I agree with that. He does this crazy jig when they come upon the mountain and he's laughing and doing this dance that you kind of say, is this guy, you know, has uh, he been in the sun too long? <laughs> um, but he seems to know what he's doing, you know. So. Right, right. 
Yeah, and like I said, Tim Holt plays Curtin, who again is a really you know reasonable guy. Uh, there's a there's a point where um, Dobbs starts talking to himself. He's off to the side, and he's like, oh, "They'll show them. They're not going to tell me." And Curtin is like, "Uh oh," you know. And he goes over to Howard, and he's like, "Dobbs, he's talking to himself." And the Curtin is like, and the and the Howard is like, goes over to Dobbs, and he's like, "What are you, what are you talking about?" He's like, "I got nobody else to talk to." He's like, well, you can talk to us. It's fine. And said, Dobbs isn't having any of it. In fact, there's another – there's a great sequence where um, Dobbs stores some of the money that he – some of the gold they found under a rock. And uh, like a, a Gila monster slips under the rock and Curtin is going to go kill the Gila monster uh, as a favor to Dobbs. And Dobbs thinks he's stealing his gold. And there's this whole long sequence where you know, Dobbs is like, you're trying to steal my money from me. And Curtin is like, no. There's a Gila monster under there. I was trying to help you. If you don't believe me, put your hand under the rock. And Dobbs doesn't want to do it. He goes, no, go ahead, Dobbs. Go ahead. If you're so sure I'm lying to you, go ahead and put it. And, of course, they flip the rock, and there is the Gila monster. And apparently during the production of this movie, John Huston, who liked playing practical jokes, did something similar to Humphrey Bogart. And they set up some sort of clamp that when Dobbs put his hand under the rock, the clamp came down on Bogart's hand, and Bogart lost it because he thought he was bit by a Gila monster. And yeah, it's in terms of the production of this, they shot almost all of it on location, which was very unusual. Um, uh, according to again the audio commentary, Houston was was printing a lot of film, shooting a lot, and printing a lot, and he was sending it all back to the lab in Warner Brothers. And Jack Warner was flipping out because he was feel like they were spending so much money. In fact, he said, according to legend, he saw some rushes and said something about you know. Uh, these bastards are costing. What, he's like, these bastards are are searching for gold. Mine, because he was just so flipped out how long this was taking. But Houston was determined to get first of all to be away from the studio. He didn't want the interference, and he figured that to get the to get the realistic look and feel of this movie, it had to be actually shot down in Mexico, which you know to do in the 1940s was not easy. Um, apparently, almost everybody got sick. From the bad food, uh, Bogart's wife Lauren Bacall was with them, even though she's not in the movie. She was there the whole time, and she apparently uh, took on the role of uh, set cook and made up food for everybody because she knew how to make food that wouldn't get everybody sick. So it was a weird, sort of a weird production. Oh, and then Bogart was also in a hurry to finish because he wanted to do a um, a yacht race. He wanted he was a big sailor and he wanted to participate in a yacht race. And he kept bugging Houston about the endless takes they were doing in this movie. And he kept bugging Houston when they were going to get finished. And um, again, according to legend, the argument ended when Bogart got so much in Houston's face. Houston grabbed Bogart and pinched his nose so hard that he started to bleed. And that was the end of that discussion. Bogart apparently never complained again about how long this film was taking to shoot. Yeah, you know, you comment on... um... Uh, the characters a little bit. I feel that whenever Bogart starts to talk in the third person, whenever he starts to say Fred C. Dobbs, you know that um, he's turned even farther because he kind of talks about, you know, um, you guys are waiting to steal my money. And then every so often he gets kind of like pulled back into humanity, like Curtin saves him when the mine almost collapses and they get into this big gunfight and they survive the scary ordeal and everything seems to be like, Hey, you know what? We should put up, uh, you know, uh, you know, pull up our tents and leave right now. We have enough money. But then further on down the line, he starts to say, you know, you think you can put one past Fred C. Dobbs. So (laughs) I kind of look at that whenever he starts to mention himself in the third person, he's kind of turned a little bit more. And it's funny, like you say, you know, Curtin, 
um, is the sympathetic character. He's like, I just want to get enough money so that I can buy land and grow peach trees. And he talks about like, you know, tilling the earth and, you know, singing songs as they gather the fruit. And then they're like, what will you do with your money, Dobbs? And he's like, I'm going to, you know, you know, soak in a spa. I'm going to buy the best clothes. I'm going to order food and I'm going to yell at the chef, even if it's good, just because I can. <laughs> and then you say, boy, these are guys that have two different like looks on the world, right? One is trying to be this organic and nurturing. Uh, and that kind of goes in with uh, Howard's look upon uh, saving the mountain. And then Dobbs, who's just, I think, bitter at the world and like can't wait to turn on it. Yeah, um, the, the the scene where <laughs> there's one part where they talk about splitting up and they're they're, they're trying to argue how they're going to do it properly. And Dobbs, first Curtin says, all right, Dobbsy, if you don't trust us, why don't you go ahead? And Dobbs is like, well, so you can shoot me in the back? Forget it. And they're like, well, all right, fine. Then we'll go ahead. And Dobbs is like, oh, yeah, so you can lay in wait for me and get, get sucker punch me when I come around the mountain? No way. And you're like, dude, what are you talking about? You Nothing we can say will please you. Yeah. And, you know, to go back to the production, sort of filming on set, a lot of the, you know, scenes that are filmed by the fire where the fire is big and the lighting is big in terms of, uh, you know, showing, you know, that they've kind of become less than human as they've tried to toil uh, in the land. And they're always grimy and sweaty and dirty. Um, I think also kind of talks about uh, the arcs that these characters go through, you know, at the end when Bogart, um, has tried to take everything and you see him, he's caked in mud. You can barely recognize him. And you say he's become something monstrous, which I think is part of what they're trying to say. Yeah. I mean, the, the makeup job is really amazing. And apparently Bogart was uh, losing his hair by this point because he was taking some sort of hormone injections because he wanted to have a child with Lauren Bacall and it caused him to go bald. So he had this wig on. And, you know, sort of ironic is that you give, you know, a, a, man, a leading man a wig to make him look more handsome, and yet he looks so filthy here. He looks absolutely wretched, and he's got that, you know, of course he had that famous slight lisp. So it's like he's just sort of horrendous here. And, again, he really like, it's a really gutsy move for Bogart to take on this role, uh, this very unsympathetic guy, and who ends up, again, when we'll get to it, meets a very grisly ending for, again, Humphrey Bogart arguably – at the time, the biggest movie star in the world, and I would, I would say probably the ultimate movie star, you know, like to this day still when you think of like movie stars, you think of Humphrey Bogart. Yeah, you know, my um, love of old movies comes from my father, and Bogart is my father's absolute favorite. So you grow up watching these movies where he is the leading man, uh, you know, whether it's Sabrina or the Maltese Falcon of Casablanca. So this kind of, you know, when I watch this movie, you're expecting him to kind of be the hero, uh, you know, or the first time I saw it, I was expecting, oh, this is going to be another Bogart movie where, you know, he becomes rich. And then you sort of see this turn. And it is kind of fascinating for him to have chosen this, um, especially at this time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it's said in a lot of ways, the hero really is Curtin, played by, again, played by Tim Holt. And Tim Holt is, is a guy that I've always wanted to talk about on the show because he's a really interesting career. This is a guy who mostly did Z-grade westerns. He was a western guy. And then he would just occasionally dabble in A-list pictures and boy, did he do some A-list pictures. I mean, in between doing a dozen movies with names like Dynamite Pass, Storm Over Wyoming, Rider from Tucson, Rio Grande Patrol, he also appeared in, again, of course, Sierra Madre, Orson Welles' The Magnificent Ambersons, Stagecoach, My Darling Clementine. And so like, you look at his filmography, and in between these towering achievements in film, he goes right back to 
you know, Wagon Train, Backstreet, Along the Rio Grande, Robbers of the Range. And it's like, from what I know about the guy, he really kind of enjoyed that life. Like, he just liked being a country guy, a cowboy. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, he would get these gigs and he'd say, yeah, I'll go do Orson Welles' movie, but then I'm going to go right back to jumping on a horse and shooting people. Yeah, it's funny. I know him best from this movie, uh, Sierra Madre and The Magnificent Ambersons. And in this movie, you feel for him so much. And in Ambersons, you know, he's you hate him. <laughs> he's right? a dick. And so you say, like, oh, it's such a fascinating two movies because that whole movie is set up for you to dislike the guy. Um, and this movie, I think the whole movie is set up for you to end up rooting for him. Yeah, yeah, and he's 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 like you you mentioned. He doesn't. He just wants enough money to go and live and and get his open his peach farm. And you're like, what? A, you know, yeah, he's a reasonable guy. You know, he just is like, look, I just want to have enough to live. I'm not looking to screw anybody over or anything like that. It's fine. And he talks about you know contributing his share at different points. And and Dobbs is just, again, Dobbs is just having none of it. He just doesn't believe any of it. He just he he can't believe that someone isn't as grubby and greedy as he is. Yeah, you know, he says once we hit twenty five thousand, we should leave. And Bogart's like, "No, we're staying till we get a hundred thousand." They're like, "That's not here." And then when this other character Cody gets killed, he's like, "We should put together a fort for that guy for his family." And Bogart just looks at him like he's insane, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and and then even later on, Bogart is like, "You know what? We left Howard back there. Let's steal Howard's piece." And and again, Curtin is like, "I'll kill you if you try to do that." Yeah. Um, uh, so it is a good dynamic between these two. Yeah, that, you mentioned the the character of Cody, played by Bruce Bruce Bennett, who actually was alive just until a couple of years ago. He lived to be, oh, I think, around a hundred. Uh, yeah, he's a, a guy that they run into, and he stumbles into the the gold, and he wants a part of it, but he doesn't really threaten them. He sort of just inclu- is asked to be included. And when Cody ends up being killed, they find a letter in his wallet that is from his family, and Curtin reads it, and his. His, it's his wife and his kid talking about how much they miss him and how much they're looking forward to him coming home. And, you know, yeah, Curtin is really taken by that. And he's like, we should send some of the money back to this guy. And, yeah, like I said, Dobbs is like, forget it, you know, forget it. Now, we, I definitely, as you're the perfect person to have on for this, uh, for this movie, uh, other, other than the fact that you love it, is the whole scene, and you mentioned it briefly, with Howard administering medicine to the Mexican child. <laughs> Because they come – a bunch of these uh, guys in a local town come to find them because they – one of the young children in the in the town is – I forget how he gets injured. If he falls or hits his head or something. Yeah, and, he's he's, um, he's found in like the lake. They find him underwater. Okay, right, right. He's unconscious, but he's, he's alive but unconscious. And they are looking for someone to help him out. Now, of course, Howard doesn't know anything about – he's not a doctor, but they ask him to come and help out. And so there's a long sequence where – Brando, uh, Brando, I'm sorry, Bogart is not in the scene, not in the movie, and it's just Howard administering this sort of medicine man kind of thing. Uh, it's an extraordinary scene because it's very silent, very it's quiet and moody, and I don't know, like I don't know if you feel like whether Howard is threatened, whether it's like is he going to pay if he can't resuscitate this kid? I can't really tell, but it's it's a really a, it's a startling scene. And as a doctor, I can only imagine what it was like to watch something like that, to watch somebody who clearly has no idea what he's doing. <laughs> well, it, it's funny that you say that because in my notes, um, I put resuscitation, WTF, long time. 
because so it is a great scene because he's ringed by these people, right? So it's almost like there's a spotlight on him. I have no idea what he's doing, right? He's moving the kid's arms up and down. It reminds me of like in the Flintstones when they pump the guy's leg when he's been underwater and the water comes out of his mouth. So I'm like, I don't know what he's doing. Then he puts a towel on the kid's stomach and he sits him up. Then he does the arm thing again. And, you know, again, as a, you know, I'm watching this and I'm going like, I have no idea what he's trying to accomplish here. The physiology makes no sense to me, but somehow it works, right? And even later on, he says this almost throwaway line that says, you know, I don't think he drowned too much. I think it was just the shock of the whole thing that had gotten to him. So uh, maybe they're trying to say, like, the kid was just, like, really startled and didn't know how to respond because... I think if I tried to do that to a drowning victim, uh, uh, I'd probably end up in court. <laughs> <laughs> you would no longer be Dr. Ange on Twitter. It would just yeah, be Ange, no, Exactly Ange right. But it is this great scene, and it kind of, again, goes back to um, trying to show Howard as being the sympathetic character because they come up to them, and they're like, we need help. And Bogart's like, you know, can't we just blow these guys off? And they're right. like, no, of course we have to try to help. So I think it builds his character a lot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in terms of, um, the, as I mentioned, that scene is is really well done. And, and this thing was all shot on location, so these guys were really outside most of the time. Uh, and yet the way the Houston shoots it, it really, in times, it feels like the moon. Like it, you really get a very otherworldly feel to this place. And apparently there were some complaints that, you know, they were like, well, you're down there spending money to make it look real, and it looks like a set. And that was the way Houston chose to light it and, and, and mm. frame frame certain scenes. I mean, to me, he clearly meant to do this. But it really does give Mexico this very strange, otherworldly feel. And it's, it's really pretty remarkable. Yeah, I think that, um, as I said, for me, the lighting is the thing that really works here because there's so much that's done by the campfire uh, that I think that that adds almost an eerie aspect to everything because the light is flickering and just looks weird. Yeah. Now, eventually, as, as the film wears on, uh, Dobbs is separated from Curtin and Howard, and Dobbs, he runs into a guy who bedevils him throughout the film, a, a bandito named Goldhat, played by Alfonso Bedoya, and this is the character that has added something to the lexicon of American <laughs> society with the badges, we don't need no stinking badges. Now, he actually doesn't say, we don't need no stinking badges. That He says, we don't need badges. We don't got no stinking badges, but people have just conflated it, which seems to be a thing that goes on with the, those lines, like "beam me up, Scotty." Apparently, like Kirk never actually said that. Um, play it again, Sam. It's yeah, another another Bogart Sam. line. Bogart never actually says "play it again, Sam." So people sort of remember things the way they want to remember it. But Alfonso Bedoya will go down in film history as the guy that says, "We don't need no stinking badges." And it was it was interesting because, uh, as I've mentioned uh, on Facebook and I've mentioned on I think here on the show. Um, I go to those Cinemark Classic series that they run, where they run old movies on Sundays. And I take my nephew, because he hasn't seen any of these movies, and I really enjoy sort of experiencing them through his eyes. And we went to see Blazing Saddles uh, the week before Treasure of the Sierra Madre was playing. Hmm. And in Blazing Saddles, there's a guy who says, we don't need no stinking badges. And and I laugh because I know what it's a reference to, but of course he just thinks it's just my nephew is just like just a weird line. And then he sees Sierra Madre and sees that and he goes, "Oh, I see. Okay, it's a reference to that." But I mean, thirty years later, Mel Brooks is still joking. You know, you can put that joke in a movie and you don't have to reference it. Everyone knows what the sticking badges thing is. Yeah, you know, at work there are plenty of places where you have to flash your badge to unlock the door, <laughs> and sometimes and sometimes people forget their badge, right? And and I will always say like, "We're fed at all, Ace." <laughs> 
pages and no one, you know, it's like one out of, I would say, 20 people that actually understands what that's from. So when you see those people who get it, it's like, oh, my God, we have to talk because they're talking the same language. (laughs) Exactly. Now, when did you like when did you first see this movie? I mean, you mentioned your dad. Did you see it as a kid or did you see it later on? Yeah, so I'm going to uh, give a little bit of a winding story. So the first time I meet Fred C. Dobbs, believe it or not, is in a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Right, uh, right, right. Uh, eight eight so, ball bunny. Yeah, so he is like with a penguin, and the penguin is trying to get captured by somebody. And throughout the cartoon, this guy shows up and is like, hey, excuse me, mister, can you spare a buck for an American down on his luck? And <laughs> as a kid, I don't know what that is. Any more that I knew, you know, who Al Jolson was when there was an Al Jolson character on the Bugs Bunny cartoons. <laughs> right. But my dad, who thought Bugs Bunny was, you know, frivolous, when he would see those, it would be like, oh, do you know what that's from? He would say it. And then um, anytime those movies were on, there was no Turner Classic Movie when I was growing up. So it really was a local television um, channel trying to just show an old movie. If it was worth watching, he would say we should watch this. And so I think this was one of the ones that I ended up seeing really more in my teen years. Um, But then I finally understood who that Bugs Bunny character was. Um, And so that's kind of when I first saw this movie. Much like when I talked about, to go back to when I talked about Shadow of a Doubt, um, you know, there was one shot in this movie that as a young film watcher, I was like, wow, that's a great shot. Maybe it's a little bit too on the nose, but when um, Dobbs shoots curtain right at one point he shoots curtain to go away with everything and he lies down by the campfire and he says you know who needs a conscience you know it only gets in the way and then the campfire basically just erupts and consumes the whole screen uh so it's just a panel of fire and and as a kid i was like wow he's consumed by greed like fire plus there's also like a hell kind of thing like he just shot his best friend to steal and so that scene as a kid just was like that's what filmmaking is about um, because it's trying, it's telling you so much more than just there being fire on the screen. Um, and so that's kind of when I first fell in love with this movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is uh, I'm John Houston, of course, one of the great, greatest film directors of all time, but boy, he did such a tremendous job on this. And, you know, he was willing to really go for it because uh, spoiler alert at the end of this movie, uh, when gold hat runs into Dobbs one last time, uh, they get the drop on Dobbs and they behead him. Uh, they lop his head off, and apparently they shot a fairly grotesque scene of Bogart getting his head cut off. And, of course, there was no way the censors were going to let that go on. So you, you get an indication of what's happened. They, you see the, the machete kind of coming up in the air, and then you the, – the way the camera moves – and it follows uh, a movement into this nearby puddle, and you see some, you see like a little bit of a splash. You know what's happened. Yeah. Uh, but they don't actually show it. And apparently, uh, Bogart was 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 quoted saying something like, "What's wrong with showing a guy getting his head cut off?" Like, <laughs> he was completely okay with it. But as I'm trying to picture, I mean, it was in the script. But I'm just trying to imagine the Warner's executives, you know, watching a scene of their biggest movie star getting his head cut off by a bunch of banditos. Yeah. And, you know, I'm almost glad uh, it's uh, sometimes those scenes are better left to your imagination, right, mm-hmm. than actually seeing what's going on. And and um, I've heard this story about how they're being like a Bogart head that was like rolled down the hill. <laughs> and um, Imagine and, that prop. Yeah. Uh, right. Uh, and, but I'm also glad in a way because I worry that if you saw it and it looked like a mannequin, then would it pull you out? So better that it's just kind of left to me thinking about him just getting chopped up. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, as we're sort of winding up here in, uh, on Treasure of the Sierra Madre, there's a couple of things I do want to mention. But before we get to that, I'm going to say, do you have like a particularly favorite scene? Um, so I do like, again, that fire sort of erupting as, as Dobbs finally 100% loses it. Um, I think that that kind of um, crystallizes everything um, that this movie uh, is trying to say. Um, but again, you know, we haven't mentioned the very end. Um, the gold is unrefined, so it looks like Durek. So when the bandits kill Bogart, they think he just has bags of dirt, and they let it blow away in the wind. And when Curtin and Howard try to find it, it's in a windstorm, and there's just all of this stuff blowing all over the place. You know that it's lost. And instead of the movie ending with them being, you know, we wasted a year of our life, they end up laughing about it. And so that end scene, I think, is really just wonderful about this whole thing, where they end up saying, you know, okay, God has played a joke on us. The best thing for us to do is laugh. And Howard ends up saying, I'm going to go back and be a medicine man in that village. They're going to treat me very well. And he tells Curtin, you should go and find Cody's wife and work on their fruit farm. Uh, And so in my head, those two end up, you know, having a happily ever after or, or living a good life. So that, I really think the ending is just a wonderful, you know, coda to the whole thing. That's funny you say that because that, that's my favorite scene as well. I mean, and, and the way they put I love um, Howard says, uh, they're going to make me a legislature, the whole legislature. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds pretty good. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, I'm set for life. And, and he said Curtin is very, very philosophical about it where he's like, well, I'm not really any worse off than I was before. He's like, we're certainly a lot better off than poor Dobbsy there because, of course, they know what's happened to Dobbs. And there's a, there's a really great line in that, in that scene where Howard says, uh, you know, Oh, you're young yet. You got time. You got time in your life to make and lose a couple of fortunes. I thought, well, that's such a kind of a fun idea that Howard is old enough to know that there is no, like there is no one thing in your life. You can go on to multiple things and that, that curtain could go on and do all these different adventures kind of, uh, it makes me sort of want to see a, like a, you know, a sequel with curtain <laughs> just going on to have what follow his story. I agree. Yeah, it's it's, it's it really does wrap the whole movie up in a very Kesara Sarah kind of feeling, which is surprising considering how brutal and violent and dark and grimy grim, grimy this movie is. Um, I mentioned earlier about seeing it at, at Cinemark. It was a funny experience because I told uh, my nephew that I'm like, we have to go see this one. I mean, I would like to go see all of them, but we have to go see this one because this. When are they ever going to show this on the big screen? And we went there. And the film doesn't start on time. And it's like 15 minutes and they haven't started yet. And finally the theater manager comes in and says, we're not sure if we can – we're having some problems getting the remote from the whatever, blah, 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 because it's all digital, of course, digital projection. Yeah. And he's like, I'm not sure that we're ever going to be able to start this. If you guys want to stick around, you're, you're free to. If you want to leave, you're leaving. And I was like, we're staying. If they're going to start this movie, we're going to watch it because I do not want to miss this. And luckily they started it an hour late. I didn't care. I was like, I, and it was, I was so glad that I a, got to take him and got to see it on a big screen. Cause it is just so rewarding to watch. And in terms of its reception, apparently it was not that big of a hit when it came out. Uh, but it, it won a bunch of Oscars. Like I said, Walter Houston, uh, won an Oscar, which mean, and, uh, later, um, John Houston's daughter, Angelica Houston won an Oscar for Pritzi's honor directed by her father, which means John Houston is the only film director that has given, 
Oscar-winning roles to a father and daughter. <laughs> um, but it, it, everyone recognized it immediately that it was a su- superb film. And it was one of those things that, yeah, it didn't make a ton of money in the beginning, but it, it made money over time and became one of the films that Warner Brothers was most proud of. So in the end, it was all worth it, of course, much like the conclusion that Howard and Curtin come to. Like, eh, it was all right. You know, we're, we're, we're fine off. You know, it's, it's only Dobbs that really suffers. Um, and in terms of the, the, the culture, uh, you, you mentioned um, – Eight Ball Bunny and and how that character being in there. There is an episode of MASH, uh, of course my favorite show, called Major Fred C. Dobbs. And the the plot of that episode is Frank Burns looking for gold in the hills of Korea and how nuts he is. And I never knew that. You know, I grew up on that show. I never knew what that meant until I saw Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Mm. Uh, It's unfortunate because it's uh, MASH creator Larry Gilbert referred to Major Fred C. Dobbs as the single worst episode we ever did. So <laughs> that has nothing to do with the Church of the Sierra Madre. And then the one other mention I, I wanted to get in is in uh, Sam Peckinpah's film, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, again with the severed heads. Uh, there's a scene apparently with Gig Young in a bar, and they ask the character of Gig, Gig Young's character, what's your name? And he says, Fred C. Dobbs. So that was Peckinpah's little tribute to this film. And um, apparently it was a fairly large uh, it was very influential to Paul Thomas Anderson and the making of There Will Be Blood, which if anybody has seen that movie, you can see the relate, you can see the yeah. comparisons there. And ac- according to Paul Thomas Anderson, Chedusier Mandre is his favorite film of all time. Huh. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it's a, it's a movie that has stuck with people, you know, <laughs> 70 years later and it's, it, it absolutely holds up. And even though Angie and I have talked about the ending and everything else, if anybody hasn't seen it, you should absolutely see it. It's a classic. Oh, totally. It's funny that, you you know, I didn't think about that. There will be blood. And you almost wonder if that would be a great double feature someday that you're just at home, right? Sort of watch them back to back. Uh, That would be amazing, especially when you think about that uh, Daniel Day-Lewis talks like John Huston in that movie. Yeah, that yeah. whole movie, he's talking kind of like John Huston. <laughs> I've put a straw under the ground and <laughs> sucked your oil. <laughs> that would make a hell of a double feature now that you say it. That yeah. would be amazing. Yeah, I'm going to write that down. <laughs> <laughs> I'll write, I'll send an email to Cinemark. Guys, get, get, get yeah. going on that. Get, get, do that. So, uh, is, is there anything else we want to talk about for Trevor Sierra Madre? Or have we, I think we've, we've done it a, a, a good, good, good service. Uh, yeah, um, I think it's clear that we both love this movie, and uh, it seems like for the same reasons, uh, and I would uh, echo what you say, that if you haven't seen it, this is definitely one to go and get. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful film, and if you're a Bogart fan, you'll love it. If you're not, just love a, you just love old movies that are just a great story well told. This is You're not going to beat this, so Treasure of the Sierra Madre, give it a watch. So, Ange, again, thank you so much, so much for coming back on the show, man. This was great. This was one of my... You know, this was again. It's one of those movies that when it was on your list, I was like, "We got to do this one. It's so great. I want to talk about it." And I'm glad I got to see it again in the big theater and sort of re-experience it. And it was great talking to you about it. Uh, yeah, I can't tell you how happy I am that I made the cut to talk about this movie with you. So thanks again <laughs> for inviting me. Well, that check really was very, it was very appreciated. So, uh, well, I should have said that bag of gold you said that would have been more appropriate. <laughs> so. uh, where can people find you on the internet? Well, I uh, run a Supergirl blog called Comics Box Commentary, uh, so you can look for me there where I talk about all things uh, Supergirl and Superman. I'm part of the Legion of Super Bloggers, where I talk about Legion of Superheroes, but uh, in terms of old movie talk, it's mostly on Twitter, where I'm Dr. Ange 70 Very cool. 
Uh, yeah, everybody, if you want to send us a message, just go to the contact page on our network site, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can also follow this show specifically on Twitter at Film and Water Pod. And please, if you think of it, leave us an iTunes review. We really could use some iTunes reviews. It will help the show get noticed. Really would appreciate that. And uh, I guess that's pretty much going to be it for now. So, again, Ange, thank you so much for joining me. I can't wait to have you back on. And uh, until next week, folks, that's a wrap. Bonnie came to Martinique When he arrived he was pretty weak His knees looked like they would buckle in His tribulations caused by a penguin Now he's built a boat on which they both can live He hoped that fickle fate have nothing up for sleep Say, pardon me, but could you help out a fellow American who's down on his luck? Hit the road! Hi, I'm Gene Hendricks. You may remember me from such shows as The Hammer Podcasts and The Quantum Cast. I'd like to tell you about some special shows that I'm doing with some of your favorite podcasters. These shows are all about the live-action versions of comic book characters, and I'm calling them... Legends of the Superheroes! In each episode, we'll be looking at a different TV show or movie featuring characters like... Wonder Woman! Dr. David Banner. And let's not forget about the non-superheroes, such as... Swamp Thing! Captain William Buck Rogers. And many more. Look for the Legends of the Superheroes specials under the Hammer Podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Hey there, my name is Al Gerding, and I have a favor to ask. If you're a fan of the Justice Society of America or other DC Comics Heroes of the Golden Age, please listen to my new podcast, The All-Star Comics Review. Grab your reprints, DC Archive editions, or the original comics if you're lucky enough to own them, and let's explore the adventures of the JSA and other Golden Age greats. Follow along with the All-Star Comics Review podcast, now found on iTunes, allstarcomicsreview.blogspot.com and Facebook. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hey, everyone. Uh, We're back here with listener feedback. Uh, I apologize. When I signed off with Ange, I completely forgot that this episode had listener feedback, so I didn't mention it before the break. Uh, Anyway, here we go. Uh, we have some iTunes reviews. We got a couple since the last time I did the feedback. First is from Gene Hendricks from the Hammer Podcast. He says, uh, five stars, great discussions on some great films. 
Rob Kelly is on to something here. He has on guests to talk about films they love, and they aren't new releases. Well, except for the ratings grabbing stunt episodes, but I can forgive him for that. There are some real classics here, both the films and the discussions, and this is making me want to watch or rewatch just about everything covered. Thank you, Gene. Uh, Brother Head gave five stars. He says, another great Fire and Water podcast. Rob Kelly and his rotating cast of guest stars do more than an excellent job of covering all these movies. Some I've seen, some I haven't. But no matter if I have or not, Rob and crew make me feel as if I have, and it makes me want to see these or rewatch. Thank you for the great job, Rob, and I'll keep listening. Thank you, Brother Head. Earth to Chris from, of course, the Fire and Water Podcast Network over at Super Mates Podcast. Five stars, lights, camera, discussion. Film buff Rob Kelly invites a rotating guest cast of guests to discuss their favorite movies, from genuine masterpieces to lovable but laughable schlockfests. This show covers the gambit of Hollywood's output from the golden age to today. Every film covered gets a due, whether it won an Oscar or a Raspberry. Highly recommended for any film of fan of film. Subscribe now. Thank you, Chris. And Al Girding from the All-Star Comics podcast. Five stars, costing me money. Enjoyable podcast, but I love different types of movies. I have, on more than one occasion, made an online purchase of the movie right after I finished listening to the episode. It must be good. That is called Payola, Al, and uh, I am making a bundle. So thank you very much for that. Thanks, everybody, for the iTunes reviews. They are super, super appreciated. Uh, There's a bajillion movie podcasts out there, so every review helps get this show a little closer to the top when people go looking for movie reviews, so movie review shows. So thank you all very much for the iTunes reviews, and please keep them coming. Regarding the messages we got uh, on episode 35, which was Hollywoodland, Chocoletta sent us a video of Jack Larson talking about George Reeves' death. Chuck always finds these amazing videos that are completely relevant to the movie we're covering, so thank you very much for that, Chuck. Jeff Nettleton says, uh, like Chris, though, I had heard Chris George Reeves jumped out of a window from my brother as a kid. Of course, he said Superman, not the actor, so I didn't believe him anyway. How could Superman die by jumping out a window? It was a key moment in never trusting anything my brother told me. He also said, it is a shame that Reeves didn't live to see the adulation he likely would have later received. Also, he directed one of the best Superman episodes, and he might have carved out a decent directorial career. Yeah, I think that's that's really true. Um, I've always been fascinated at the um, the final episode of Adventures of Superman, which was the clip that is running in that show. Like, I know that they didn't know that it was the final episode, but it, there's something about that final scene. It, I think there's like a, it's like a little bit of poignancy there that I feel like wasn't in, entirely accidental. It feels like a nice little sign-off to the characters. I, again, I could be wrong. And that one was directed by George Reeves. So, yeah, I think he might have had a decent uh, directing career like a lot of actors might have. Regarding episode 36, which was Inherit the Wind, Clinton Robison from the Coffee and Comics blog says, So glad you guys covered this movie. I saw it back in high school when researching the play for Speech and Debate, and I've always loved it. I remember watching the scene where Brady's on the stand so many times. Such an incredible movie with powerful portrayers by amazing actors. In regards to the send him to hell lady, doesn't every small town have at least one of these? Goodness knows where I grew up we had a whole small society of them. Jeff Nettleton says, a tremendous piece of storytelling and a true actor's clinic. I love Spencer Tracy's Battle of Wits with Frederick March over literal interpretation of the Bible, blind obedience versus scientific curiosity and discovery. Gene Kelly holds his own with these acting powerhouses. That's absolutely true. As I think we said, Mike and I said on the show, uh, it really is a shame that Gene Kelly didn't get a chance to do more straight dramatic roles because he's, he's terrific in the movie. Chuck Coletta says, uh, if you're looking for another Spencer Tracy social issue drama based on an actual event, you should check out Fury from 1936. This is Fritz Lang's first American film, and the issue was lynching, which was still prevalent at the time. 
that co-stars Sylvia Sidney, known to you younger folks from Beetlejuice and Mars Attacks. That is a great film. I have seen that. I think I've seen virtually, at the time that I was working at the video store where I was sending myself to the unofficial film school, um, we had a Hollywood's Best section, and they were grouped by star, and I always loved Spencer Tracy, and I think I just saw every movie in that section, and that was on VHS. So over the years, other films of his have come out, which I, I don't think I've seen. But uh, pretty much, if Spencer Tracy had been in a movie and it was available on VHS in 1993, I saw it, and that was one of them. And it is. Uh, Chuck is right. It's a terrific movie. Uh, Mark Baker Wright says, Before I get to my real comments, a few points of relevant self-disclosure. One. I am not only a Christian, but I've spent my entire adult life, more than 20 years now, as either a student or staff person in Christian higher education. Also, my wife is a member of the clergy. Two, I am not a creationist. Three, I love both the play and film versions of Inherit the Wind. I was rather intrigued by the comments near the beginning of the podcast about how atheists and agnostics are often portrayed less than favorably. I have no intention to dispute this assertion. The fact is... I've never thought to look into the matter enough to know, but I have spent a lot of time reading comments from Christian believers claiming that they are poorly portrayed in the media. Personally, I've always considered such assertions to be misplaced, but it makes me wonder about how we, as people, are often inclined uh, to not necessarily to take offense at every little thing, certainly neither of the hosts seem to be offended, but certainly to see ourselves misrepresented by people who perceive to be outsiders. I'm not sure what to make of that, but I nonetheless found it interesting. Yeah, it is quite interesting. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate that. I think that's uh, true in a lot of ways. Uh, Vera Wild wrote in to say, This is one of those oft-retold stories where I'm more familiar with the off-brand version. In my case, I was shown the 1980s version with Kirk Douglas. Needless to say, I quite enjoyed it. I mean, it's Kirk Douglas. But I should probably acquaint myself better with the more iconic version. I found Mike's discussion about representation to hit home in many ways, though not for reasons of atheism in my case. But when uh, something you identify as Israeli portrayed in entertainment and the instances you can find conform to a rigid, unrepresentative, or unflattering template, it's confusing, frustrating, and potentially damaged to one's self-worth. That's not to say that every depiction of every stripe of love needs to be shiny, happy, rainbow fun time. But it is the consistency of showing characters with certain traits in always the same light and the weight of that which does the damage. Uh, Vera, that's absolutely true. Um, in, a, in a much more lesser sense, I sort of always thought that way about how kind of comic book people were portrayed all the way from like the 70s up until basically the 90s, probably right. I think the Batman, the first Batman movie with Tim, by Tim Burton dispelled that. But uh, yeah, I mean, for growing up, every character in a movie or TV show that read comic books was like unintelligent, a nerd, just hopeless. And that you know, that bothered me a lot because I didn't recognize that person as myself. Maybe I was that, but it, it definitely, uh, you know, bothered me to see that you know, every comic book person was just a complete dork. And uh, I'm glad to see that has changed over time. But yeah, growing up, that was a big deal. Episode 37 was Gross Point Blank. That got a huge response. I mean, that was one of the most downloaded episodes and got a ton of feedback. Uh, I was really happy to, to, to see that because the, the comments seemed to break down in one or two ways. One, Yes, this is a classic. I'm so glad you covered it. Or two, I've never seen this movie. i got to discover it. And that was really great because it is a terrific movie. Uh, Nathaniel Wayne uh, says, uh, What a terrific movie, and you guys really nailed what made it so great. Most films tend to feel like the characters only exist to take part in one story, but everyone here feels like they have their own life that just happens to be intersecting with the story of the film. And like Rob said, it feels like a middle film in a series. I'm a huge sucker for that, and it's annoyingly hard to find. This film has it. The first Pirates of the Caribbean has it. Masters of the Universe had it. Not that I'm saying that makes it a good movie, but I'm just saying. And the Thin Man series had it in spades, thanks to the fact that Nick Charles seemed to know and be known personally by pretty much everybody. 
that's a good those are all good suggestions um i absolutely agree with the thin man series and i love those movies i don't think i've ever even mentioned it uh, even though we're 40 episodes in how much i love william powell and myrna loy they are probably my favorite film duo and i absolutely would like to cover some of those movies especially the thin man movies at some point um, they made 14 films together and i'd be happy to cover every single one of them they are just terrific uh, by the way, I should mention Nathaniel Wayne does the Council of Geeks podcast. Jeff Nelson also commented, I bypassed this film when it hit theaters, but picked up the soundtrack and loved it, which led to picking up the movie on DVD. It helped that it was cheap. Loved the film. Like you say, it has well-rounded characters, snappy dialogue, and is a ton of fun. Ryan Daly from the Fire and Water podcast network of Give Me Those Star Wars and Secret Origins said, Jeff, uh, regarding his comment to Jeff, I edited the soundtrack version of Let My Love Open the Door with a regular rock version for my wedding. I used the song to segue from a slow dance just for the wedding party to the fast bar where all the guests got on the floor. I love that story, Ryan. That's terrific. That's really great. Uh, He also pointed out, Gross Point Blank has long been one of my favorite movies because it's a damn good film, as you and the Sutherlands illustrated. And B, I saw the movie on one of my real first dates in high school. For reasons I never totally understood, some girls at my high school thought I looked like John Cusack. Worst things, Ryan. I wanted to believe they meant Cusack from this film, but they were really thinking of Cusack from Better Off Dead. It's a shame to throw away perfectly good Ryan Daly like that. Uh, Nathaniel Wayne comes back, uh, mentions it. He says, apparently there is a metal band called This Is Me Breathing. And some of their songs include titles like It's Not Me and You're a Handsome Devil. Can't actually say I cared for the music, but I smiled at the existence of such things. Illegal Machine from the Rolled Spine Podcast Network said, uh, great episode, somehow still a criminally underrated movie. Another great scene when Cusack and Piven are disposing of the assassin's freshly pen-necked body in the furnace. The way they slide the body down the stair rail and violently toss it around is so hilariously disturbing. Yeah, that's true, and I'm glad you pointed that out, uh, Illegal, if I may call you that. Because there's a moment where when they throw the body into the furnace and Cusack puts on a... Uh, like a, a handkerchief over his hand to shut the metal doors because, of course, they're they're blisteringly hot. And there's a point where he pulls his hand away like it really burned him. And I don't think, obviously, it didn't. That, that thing wasn't warm. But Cusack really sells it because he really – the way he thrashes his hand around is exactly like what you would do when you burn – you know, you really get a burn. So I thought that was such a nice little moment. And he slams the door. He slams one door and it slams shut and then he slams the other one so hard that it bounces back open and they just left it that way which I, I thought that was such a perfectly imperfect little moment uh, Ange uh, from Common Buck's commentary blog says I absolutely love this movie for many of the reasons you guys see here there is a sly wit throughout the movie that makes intelligent and that is that makes it intelligent and funny I also like that Martin keeps telling people he's a killer it is only after Jeremy Piven helps him push the dead body to the incinerator that he asks this time with feeling what do you do Martin and that is, that's a great turn. I think that's Jeremy Piven's final scene in the movie. And then there is something so wonderfully sad about that where he's like, so what do you do, Martin? That's a, that is a great moment. Clinton Robinson comes back and says, excellent, excellent episode as always. Like about half of the movies that are featured on this podcast, I have never actually seen this one. Thanks for turning me on to yet another modern classic. You're welcome, Clinton. FKA Jason writes to say, just rewatch this movie after listening to your show. Both were excellent. Regarding Martin closing the blinds in the radio booth, I believe he did that because he was uncomfortable having his back to a window. He knows Grocer and the two feds are out to kill him. As soon as Debbie gets up to close the other set of blinds, Martin trades seats with her. Back to the wall, he can see anyone approaching from the street or interior of the building. Yeah, I, I'm sure you're absolutely right. In fact, I, I always thought that. I don't know why I said that on – I didn't say that on the show. But yeah, it's a, like, it's a mob thing. You always want to keep your back to the wall so you can see what's happening. Uh, Chris Franklin came back and said, 
Uh, as for feeling like a sequel uh, is wrong in my head canon, is it wrong in my head canon that this is a sequel to Better Off Dead? Given how messed up Cusack's Lane Myers was in that film, I could see him growing up to be a hitman. I know it doesn't really work, but given the continuing adventures feeling of this film, somehow it just fits. Plus, I love Better Off Dead. Yeah, that's a terrific movie. That We'll have to get to that one on the show, because that is a really great movie. That was a cable staple when I was a kid. Uh, I love all the crazy jokes, and I, I loved uh, Major Winchester as the dad, and the food that's unedible. It was, that's a terrifically fun movie. Uh, Diablo Frank from World Spine comes and says, uh, I saved Gross Point Blank for the entire seven plus years of my relationship as a rainy day movie when my girlfriend could use some cheering up. Inspired by this podcast and a bad day, I finally played it for her and she is now the only person I know who doesn't like Gross Point Blank. In fact, I was so put off by her BS rationales, so violent and poor taste that it left me in an extremely bad mood where I wondered what I'm doing with this person in my life. <laughs> We're going to move on. He says, I worked in an adult boutique for three years. He's making this up. This isn't true. When new management started to take the fun out of the joint, the dude insisted via the new email system that we had to have a mandatory staff meeting on my day off when I had a personal matter to attend to that I wasn't open to discussing. When he insisted, I offered a cleaned-up, work-safe summary of Grocer's attempt to organize an environment meant to be loose. I quit that job via email with the line, no meetings. (laughs) I know you're making that story up, Frank, but it's great nonetheless. Uh, he also said, also forgot to mention, great to hear the Sutherlands so loose and off the cuff. Great chemistry on this episode. Yes, it was wonderful having Darren and Ruth on the show. Um, look forward to having them on again. Alexander Osias has been wanting to watch this film for almost two decades now. Time to get that checked off. Yes, Alexander, don't, don't wait for these. We're adding episode 38, which was The Shining. Chris Franklin says, great discussion. One of the earliest modern horror movies I watched at a way too young an age. Probably the first time I encountered Jack Nicholson as well, so he made quite an impression. The scene with the nasty old female corpse scared the bejesus out of me. Still gives me the chills just thinking about it. I think Transformers was still on at the time when I saw the film, so it was a little unsettling to hear Jazz's voice coming out of a guy who gets axed in the chest. Plus, Hong Kong Fooey and countless other cartoon voices Scatman provided. Very jarring to a young kid who had no business watching this film. <laughs> I never thought about that, but yeah, you're right. It is upsetting to think of Hong Kong Fooey getting it there. Um, Mike Bridges says, cool, can't wait to download and listen to this. Like you, Chris, I saw this at a young age. I was freaked out by the old lady. Went from a hot naked lady to a scary old one. Uh, he says, I think you guys need to talk about Flash Gordon. That would be awesome to hear a discussion of one of my favorite childhood films. I still listen to the Queen album from time to time. Also, Killer Clowns from Outer Space. I tell my kids that's the best movie ever made. Um, Flash Gordon, that's absolutely a, a, a doer. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that one. I think I'll probably have to, uh, as Chris mentions, uh, beating off potential guests with a stick for that one. Kill Counts from Outer Space? I'm going to pass on that one. Uh, Nathaniel Wayne said, I have just accepted at this point that there is something about this movie that I just don't get. People praise it all over the place, put it on best of lists, and I just don't think it works. I've never thought it works. Not the first time when I saw it in high school, not the time when I saw it in my 20s on the big screen with an audience. I recognize the artistry that went into making it, but it just does not click for me. I feel the same way about No Country for Old Men. And so far as I've been able to find, I'm the only person who feels that way whose opinion isn't shaped by a preference for the book, which I've never read. Michael Chiaroscuro says, very interesting episode. I just wrote about The Shining here, and he sends a link. Uh, You can find that on the uh, comments page uh, on Fire and Water Podcast Network and then the Fire, Film and Water show thread. And George's initial thoughts on the movie mirror mine very closely. Also, I chuckled when he said he avoided the book for years because of his passion for the film, because I did the same thing. I'm even a fan of Stephen King's, and I've read quite a few of his books, but I steadfastly avoided The Shining for decades. I first saw the movie as a teenager in the 90s, and ever since, I've been in its thrall. 
When I finally read King's novel earlier this year, I was equally pleased with it. It was silly of me to avoid it all this time. It's not the movie, but it's not the movie, but the source material, and it's valid and engaging and really very good all on its own. So now I have a love for both the film and the book, which is pretty cool. Absolutely, Michael. Jeff Nettleton says, I'm kind of surprised you didn't mention, or at least I didn't hear you mention, that the bartender was Joe Turkle, who plays Tyrell in Blade Runner. He wasn't the most prolific actor in terms of high-profile movies, but it was a memorable one. Yeah, Jeff, that's completely my fault. I think I even had that in my notes, uh, because there is, of course, a double Shining connection, and that Joe Turkel, as you mentioned, is in The Shining, and he's in Blade Runner, and the original ending to Blade Runner features cut footage from The Shining. Um, that scene of uh, Harrison Ford and Sean Young uh, is uh, interspersed with uh, like uh, helicopter footage over some mountains, and that was cut scenes from The Shining. So um, it's ironic that a scene from The Shining was used to create a happier ending for another movie. Chuck Oletta says, Scatman Crothers wrote and performed a theme song in honor of Kubrick. And again, he found another amazing YouTube video of Scatman Crothers. Uh, obviously, Scatman didn't hold any grudges against Stanley Kubrick, despite making him do hundreds of takes for some simple scene. Uh, Ange says, the young Ange, I love how he refers to himself in the third person like Hammer, grew up on slasher films, thumbed through Thangoria, and thought someone doing a handstand being macheted down the middle of his legs was the best death in Friday the 13th Part 3. That Ange watched The Shining and thought it was dumb and boring. I mean, are those two creepy girls in an elevator full of blood scarier than Jason Voorhees force-feeding teens lit road flares? Uh, that answers itself, Ange. He says, as for the madness or haunted question, can I be wishy-washy and say both? My feelings are that the hotel is definitely haunted, but it would take a particularly disturbed mind for the haunting to manifest itself as it does in Torrance. So the workers want to leave for the season. Maybe they can sense something is amiss. But only Nicholson, with his issues, can get the full-blown spectral presence. Siskoid, uh, from, of course, our network, Fire and Water Podcast Network of Ohatmu and the Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, says, I don't think you're being wishy-washy, Ange. Madness unlocks the house, though the house does push everyone's psyche to the breaking point so it can be unlocked. I think that's absolutely a reasonable view of it, uh, Siskoid. Frank came back and said, all that being said, I'm with Nathaniel Lane. I feel the same way about Stanley Kubrick as I do Alan Moore. They're both cold, calculating technicians who impress me with their craft, but leave me entirely cold and not a little bored emotionally. Respect, but not my bag. Fair enough. Uh, regarding the first mini-sode, which was Ryan and I talking about the Doctor Strange trailer, Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast said, I'm curious when this film is set. Is it set in the present day of the Marvel Universe, or the past, or both? It could be set in the present day, because Arnim Zola's algorithm that identified Strange as a threat was predictive. I completely forgot about that, but you're right, Paul. It'll be interesting to see when exactly this is, this is set, the Doctor Strange is set. Chris Franklin points out, The Batman Begins points are valid, but Strange went to debate long before that was added to Batman's origin. The fact that Begins got there first from the movie, in movie form is unfortunate, but that part is honestly more important to Strange than Batman. As for the cameo, if Christian Bale shows up in a Disney movie, he has to sing. It's in his Newsies contract. Yeah, you're right. Doctor Strange might lose a couple of points because people think it's from Batman Begins. Uh, but then it, it flows the other way. And the fact that I'm sure DC is going to get dinged for when they bring in Darkseid into their films because people are going to be like, that's just Thanos. When, of course, we all know Darkseid preceded Thanos in the comics. But most moviegoers have no idea about that. Siskoid mentions the elephant in the room that is about to break some China plates is Hollywood's refusal to cast Asian actors in Asian roles, spotlighted this week by both the Ancient One and the Ghost in the Shell casting. Hollywood doesn't mind making white characters black or males females, and I'm down with that, but the one last stumbling block seems to be Asians, which are going to the other which are going the other way. 
uh, somebody named Rift, great name, comes in and says, loving this mini-sode format. Teaser trailers and tra trailers themselves are getting so much attention these days that I think covering them is now necessary, like you guys already said. I didn't know what to expect with this trailer or even the movie. I'm not very knowledgeable of the Sorcerer Supreme, so as you guys already mentioned, I don't have much to base my expectations on. So I'm quietly and excitedly waiting to see. Thank you, Rift. Paul Hicks says, Rob, I hope you'll refer to normal episodes as maxi-sodes from now on. Probably not going to do that. Martin Gray from the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog says, The trailer looks great. Shame about Cumberbatch's horribly Hugh Laurie burr. I, I, I don't know what to say, Martin. I can't. Uh... Jeff Nettleton asks a very profound question. The true question in all of this is, will it hold up to Peter Van Hooten? He's, of course, referring to the 1978 TV movie, which I would love to cover on this show. Maybe we'll do that sometime in anticipation of the Doctor Strange movie because there's a lot to say about that. It, it's, it's not that... I don't know. It's not that bad. Compared to, like, Captain America and Spider-Man, the Doctor Strange movie's really not that bad. And I kind of hope that they work in maybe Jessica Walter or maybe give Peter Van Hooten, like, a cameo or something. That'd be super cool. Uh, regarding episode 39, which was 13 days, uh, Ryan Daly says, Wow, between this episode and the Lady Secret Origins podcast, that's two references to Elia Baskin in 2010 in three days. Gotta give people what they want, Ryan. He also says, This isn't a criticism of Kevin Costner, but I always felt like Ken O'Donnell was the least interesting character in the whole movie. I waited more. I wanted more time with everyone else in the movie, and yet that doesn't disrupt my enjoyment. The fact that the lead character is boring and the plot and the structure are totally unorthodox, none of that hinders my fondness for this film. Yeah, I agree with that. I feel like that the Kevin Costner role is is like that's how it got made. I mean, in fact, I think it was literally how it got made. Costner produced it or something. So, uh, yeah, I've, all the stuff with the government officials and, and the higher branches of government is interesting. For the cut back to his family, is sort of to me the least interesting stuff in the movie, but. It's, it's fairly mi relatively minor in a two-and-a-half-hour movie. Uh, Paul writes in to say, you forgot to mention the operator doesn't realize she has a tone. Yeah, that is a great moment where they pick us a, a reception and a, a um, switchboard operator who is definitely learning to – has learned to manage the White House switchboard. And, uh, uh, you know, what kind of tone? I don't have a tone. It's, it's a great little bit for that character actress. Jeff Nettleton says, I enjoyed the discussion, particularly Michael Bailey's comment about being in charge and not wanting it. I'm a retail manager. I know what he speaks. I'm going to have to seek this out and give it a view. He also says, I also have to agree about Batman v Superman being the Vietnam for Superman, a wrong-headed direction from which we won't emerge anytime soon. <laughs> we're, we're within moments of victory. Nathaniel Wayne says, uh, this is a movie that I've only actually seen once, but I still remember many of the scenes very vividly, which speaks to how well it was made. This was my introduction to Bruce Greenwood, and he hasn't let me down since. Coletta said, if I'd been alive in 1952 and 56, I'd have voted for Stevenson over Ike. You were the, I think you were the only one, Jeff. Uh, yeah, I mean, if, if it's funny. Um, if Stevenson in real life was sort of as powerfully uh, as he is presented here in the movie, yeah, he seems like a, like a great president, but I, don't, I get, get the sense he never quite conveyed that uh, in real life. He also mentions, one of my favorite bits of the Film and Water podcast is how eclectic your selections have been. I'm glad you're not just doing the expected classics. I saw 13 Days in a the Theater and sadly never revisited it. I will have to correct that ASAP. Yeah, thank you, Chuck. Uh, part of my goal of the show was to do that, to really toggle back and forth between movies that everybody knows and loves and uh, expected things and then some obscure things. And we do have a couple of like very obscure titles coming up quite soon, so I hope you enjoy those and we will just sort of shoot back and forth. It really does come down to what strikes my fancy, what do I have something to say about, and what can I find a guest for. So once you find a movie that has all those things, that's when we go and, and we do it. So uh, that's the feedback for all the episodes. I really appreciate it, everybody. Uh, if you want to, of course, 
send an email. It's fireandwaterpodcast.comcast.net. But the easiest way to get a hold of the show is just to leave a comment on the episode page, or you can use the contact form at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Ask you again. Remember, for the iTunes reviews, I really appreciate those. You can follow the show over on Twitter at Film and Water Pod. That's really a, a very helpful way to get involved in the discussion outside of um, the emails and, and the you know the regular back and forth feedback. I love seeing new Twitter followers, so please follow us there. And I have two other things I want to mention before we sign off. First of all, um, I'm going to do something which I'm calling the Golan and Globus event. Uh, I have been wanting to sort of do a celebration of uh, the, the greatest film producers of all time, uh, Golden Globus, Canon Films, uh, ever since I saw that documentary on Netflix, which was Electric Boogaloo, the, about the, the Golden Globus story. Um, and I've been trying to think of different ways how to do it. And I finally figured out I think this is the way I want to honor these two titans of film. Uh, I'm going to do a massive episode. I'm hoping maybe we can do it in time for the 50th. Uh, episode of the Film and Water podcast, but I'll have to see how the time works out. Where I'm instead of doing one movie or just two Golden Globus movies, I'm going to try and cover as many as I can. And what I would like to do is have a different guest for every single Golden Globus movie. Uh, not not one that everyone that they've made, but everyone that we're going to cover on the show is a different guest. And I would like to spend no more than 10 minutes on any given movie so we can fit in as many as possible. And if you want to be part of this event, uh, this is how you can do it. You can either send an email to the show at firewaterpodcast.net or use the contact form on the fireandwaterpodcast.com page, not the comments, the contact form, and send me two Golden Globus movies that you would like to cover. Basically, your number one choice and then an alternate. And that way, hopefully, everybody can get their first choice. And if not their first choice, their second choice. Because I know everybody's going to ask for Hercules because they want to talk about him throwing a bear in an outer space. So if you want to be part of this and you can, and you have Skype or maybe even a cell phone that I can call and you are interested in being part of this, send me your top two selected Golden Globus films. Again, via the email, firewaterpodcast.net, or the contact form at firewaterpodcast.com, and I will compile all of those choices, and then I will make the selections, and then I will be contacting everybody, and then when we record it, we'll do no more than 10 minutes on a movie. Just 10 minutes, and that way we can get covers. Many Golden Globus classics, Death Wish 4, The Crackdown, Masters of Universe, Breaking to Electric Boogaloo, of course, all those things. And that way it's kind of a giant party, which is something I think Golden Globus would want. So again, if you want to be part of the Golden Globus event, send an email or use the contact form with your top two Golden Globus choi- Golden and Globus film choices, and then I will get back to you. And hopefully we can compile all this in time again for the 50th episode. If not... It'll come down later on the line. But this is something I've been wanting to do for a, for a little while, ever since I saw the documentary, and I think it'll be a lot of fun. So if you're a Golden Globus fan, and who isn't, please let me know what films you want to talk about. And I guess before we sign off, I just heard the news today that uh, director Guy Hamilton has passed away. Uh, he was 93, hell of a life. Uh, he, of course, directed four James Bond films, Live and Let Die, Diamonds Are Forever, The Man with the Golden Gun, and Goldfinger, which, of course, many people consider one of the great uh, James Bond films, if not the greatest. And I think it's the only James Bond film on the AFI Top 100 films of all time. He directed some other films as well. His final film was called Try This One for Size in 1989. He also directed Evil Under the Sun, one of the uh, Hercule Poirot movies. Sounds like he had a really interesting, amazing life. And uh, we just have to give a tip of the hat to him because he seemed like a, a great guy and a great director. So, uh 
Rest in peace, Guy Hamilton. So that is going to do it for this episode of the Film and Water podcast. I have to thank Ange for coming on and talking about Treasure of the Sierra Madre, one of my all-time favorite films. And if you like us talking about Bogart, stay tuned because next week we're going to have yet another Bogart film. Just sort of worked out that way. Who doesn't love Humphrey Bogart, right? So anyway, thanks everybody for listening. I really appreciate all the feedback and all the iTunes reviews and all the, the kind words you give me. It's, it's really, really rewarding because uh, the show, you know, I, I didn't necessarily think I would be doing this every week, but now I'm addicted to it. I'm addicted to the feedback, and I'm addicted to getting together and talking with everybody about a movie they love. So thanks, everybody, and until next week, that's a wrap. This movie's a classic. It's got the three things that make a movie great. Horses, cowboys, and horses. <laughs> <laughs>